I'm Kendra Tomolato, here with Mei Zhang, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China Travel. Each week, we'll be heading to a new place in China to share our top local tips and tricks, highlighting our favorite food, hotels, and experiences, as well as sharing resources. We'll be recording these episodes live on Clubhouse every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And after the podcast portion, we'll open up for live Q&A and story sharing. So if you'd like to join live, please follow Mei at Zhang Meijia or me at Kaytan Bellato. If you're joining or catching up on past episodes, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. And lastly, if you're interested in traveling China with us or attending any of our other virtual events, please visit our website at wildchina.com. For this episode, we'll be addressing many of the questions we've received over the years on China travel. We hope the information will help you get started on planning your trip to China. I've sourced some questions um, from when I worked as a travel designer at Wild China that I often got asked, um, and I'm hoping May you can sort of help answer these. Um, they're sort of founded around the idea of like a first time traveler to China. I know a lot of people do like a once in a lifetime trip. A lot of our travelers have actually done multiple trips to China, but just sort of with this idea of going to a new country that you know nothing about. I will kick things off.、Um, my first question. If we're talking about a first-time visit to China and maybe sort of a once-in-a-lifetime trip, how long would you recommend for a trip to China? Well, if I were having no strains, no constraints, I would be in China for six months. But majority of the travelers, when people travel to China、uh, as a、um, once-in-a-lifetime journey, I would say probably two weeks is about as long as I would give it. The reason being. Anything shorter than that, it's not worth your while to recover from the jet lag. It, it's a long way away from the United States or Europe. But anything longer than that, though, China is so massive, and the traveling with the crowds around you it gets very tiring. So very often, people tell me they want to be there for three weeks. I would say take a little bit downtime somewhere in the middle. Just find a Beautiful lodge、um, and hide away and read all the China books that you wanted to read that you haven't gotten to. You need a bit of a downtime in the middle to make your trip really meaningful. Three weeks rushing around is too long. So my bottom line recommendation: if you are wanting to use your time efficiently to explore China, twelve to fourteen days is good. I had a client that booked a three-month trip to China. With us, and I remember you saying to me, you know, advise him to make it shorter. Which, from sort of like a business standpoint, I was really surprised about. But I think you had a good point. Like people sort of lose that that magic after a while. Not the people, but the country does. You know, you lose that sort of like excitement of being in a new place.、Um, so maybe it's better to experience in sort of short bursts and not get burned out. So that's something、yeah. that I wanted to add. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. I think you're totally right from business perspective. But yes, please stay three months. But really, to get the best bang for the buck or the best experience, keep your energy together. Come back again. Then you have desire to come back again. Cut China up into sort of chunks to digest on each trip. Make three to four trips if you have the interest. Couldn't agree more. Okay, so saying we have two weeks of travel time, what would your suggested sort of itinerary be for a first-time visit to China, keeping in mind sort of the must-sees, the can't-misses kind of stuff? I always say the first time is almost like ticking off the must-see boxes, but the more fun gets started from your second trip. Actually, even the first trip, you can make it fun. What I always do is. I would think about okay, what are the iconic sort of imageries in my mind that represents China that I must see? 
This is what I did when I went to Rome, for example, right? When I went to Italy, I would go through my mind, okay, the Colosseum, the Forum, Florence, those are the places I want to see. So do the same sort of thought process. Imagine China, which are the places that caught your imagination? I would imagine to start the Great Wall in the Forbidden City in Beijing would be on that list. And then it's the Terracotta Warriors in Xi'an. A lot of travelers do go to Yangtze River Cruise, which I have a different opinions on. I'll get to that later. And then maybe Shanghai or Hong Kong to finish off at the big cities. This is sort of like the classic China journey. But I would say don't spend more than a week doing that. If you have two weeks, you need to spend the other week to go a little bit deeper. China, in one of the provinces, if you can, pick any province. Yunnan, Guizhou, but pick one of the area and spend a solid week there. Then you will really start to get a little bit of flavor of the diversity of the country and not just sort of like a buffet. I sample everything in China.、Um, I think if you sample everything, the experience is really like a buffet. It's not worth a lot of money. But if you actually have a main course in a certain province, it will make a deeper impression. Um, yeah, I think that sounds really good. I think usually we would do like start in Beijing, right? Because there's a lot of international flights in and out of Beijing, and then、yes. Xi'an, and then go somewhere else, like you said, for a week, somewhere more off the beaten path, somewhere that people can go home and tell their friends about that, like not everyone they know has been to,、mm-hmm. and then end in maybe Shanghai or Hong Kong for that sort of very modern metropolitan feel. And there's also a lot of international flights out of those too. So sort of just to summarize, is that sort of the suggestion? Correct. That is very much the way. Now, why do I always suggest starting from Beijing and not starting from Shanghai or Hong Kong? Is because I find a the flights are easier, but b when you start from Beijing, the current capital, it's easier to have guides who will lay out the history, and so it's a little bit like an orientation for you to get the hang of the geography of the country, how the country works, and the history of the country. So to have orientation done in Beijing, then the rest of the pieces will have places to fall into. Yeah, totally agree. We have sort of our main sort of four-ish destinations.、Um, what's the best way to get between them? You know, once you're in China, you've done the international flights. How's the best way to get around? Is it flying, trains, bus? What? Well, ten years ago, it would be flying, right? Completely. But now I highly, highly advise people to just go by train, unless it's the longest leg. Let's say if you're going straight from Shanghai to Hong Kong or、uh, from Xi'an to Hong Kong, that sort of thing. Then yes, do fly because it's a long, long train ride. China nowadays, the high-speed rail connections in between cities are impressive. Take example between Beijing and Shanghai; it's four hours, and if you go to the airport, it's a two-hour flight. Plus checking in an hour early, and if you have luggage, an hour to find it, and it takes an hour to get to the airport, which is further from the train station. So in total, your time investment is very similar, but the train is just so much more relaxing. Gives you a chance to really bring out your good reads on China, and I think reading is a very important part along the journey when you when you explore. Again, puts things in context. So I would highly recommend the train, even from Xi'an to Chengdu. It's now. Three-hour train ride, Beijing to Xi'an, five-hour train ride. Honestly, couldn't agree with that one more. My、uh, boyfriend and I did all of China. We didn't take any airplanes. That was like our goal. So we did everything by by train. Some buses, which I probably wouldn't recommend, but the trains are amazing because you get to see the scenery change as well, which 
in China is so cool because you go from these huge cities, which just go on forever and ever and ever. And then you're in the mountains and then you're going next to like a massive lake that you've never heard of or even like seen mentioned anywhere. Um, so yeah, I love the trains. I'm totally on board with that one. Cool. How about flights though? I guess for like sort of longer haul stuff, uh, domestic flights are, are good in China. Oh, I think they're very good. Very good, very frequent and relatively affordable. They're just a little bit more expensive or sometimes about the same price as the train tickets. In China, the business class tickets are actually not exorbitant at all. They do give you sort of an escape away from the crowd. And uh, just I think one of the biggest surprises most travelers when they get to China is, is the crowd level, right? Look at the population. It is so much more condensed or dense in the big cities. So the airports can be very busy and hectic. And on a flight, if your budget allows a little bit, I would go with business class and just have a lounge access and have, you know, your um, shortcut to get to the, the front part of the plane. It's just a bit more relaxing if the budget allows. I just sort of want to circle back quick to the, the trains because this is something I also uh, get asked a lot is the overnight trains. Sort of what you were referring to before is, is mainly the high-speed trains, which operate during the day. But then there's also the sleeper trains in China. I know a lot of people ask about that. What's your sort of advice on those? That, I have to say, I'm not, but personally, this is a very subjective matter. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of sleeper trains because of two things. One, I like to arrive at the next destination the uh, fresher. And two, one thing I don't like about trains is the bathroom quality. Going to the bathroom to brush your teeth or using the bathroom on the rocking train is just not my cup of tea. And so I would prefer to have my own private bathroom in a very clean hotel, even though it is a little bit more expensive. But China is such a great bargain for luxury hotels that if you, you know, spend a night at the Four Seasons in Beijing, yeah, it kills $250. But the experience is much, much nicer than rocking on the train all night. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to add to that, something I always tell people is that a lot of the trains, they have like a shared bathroom for the whole train car. Um, and it's usually, some of them are, but it's usually like a squatter toilet. So just trying to set people's expectations correctly. Like, you know, if you're up for the train, that's awesome. But make sure you're sort of totally aware of what it's going to be like. And it is definitely a cultural experience. So, you know, that's something that uh, makes it good. But I agree. Uh, hotels are much nicer. Yeah. Okay. So then I guess going to the next one is accommodation, hotels. What are the accommodations like in China? And what should people expect, like price-wise? What are the standards? What are the different options? Like I just alluded to a little bit earlier, it is a great country for bargains. Let me qualify that. In big cities, in Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Guangzhou, or Chengdu, all these big cities, there's such an influx of luxury hotels that you really get incredible quality, like impeccable service at the price range of, let's say, $200 to $300. In Beijing and Shanghai, the top uh, hotels like Bulgari or the Peninsula, uh, the Mandarin Oriental, the Rosewood, and all of that are around $400 to $500, which is half of what you'll get in the States. Half the price, I mean, for more of the quality. The same room in New York would cost you $1,200, really. 
the size, um, the the service, the amenities. So, so in big cities, luxury hotels in China is a huge bargain. That said, China now offers beautiful, stunning designer lodges in remote, remote locations, in small villages,、um, in the Tibetan mountains, or in the、uh, villages near Shanghai. There are these eye-catching lodges in those places. Now these are a different story, because every Chinese working in Beijing, Shanghai want to go to these places. There are not too many rooms. There's limited supply, bigger demand. Naturally, as you economics one on one would tell you, they're overpriced. It's still in the price range of about two thousand to four thousand RMB. So that starts at what three hundred dollars to five hundred dollars on the weekend. The service compared to what you get in the city is less. Still, I mean, those kind of properties in the U.S. would still cost you about a thousand dollars, like Post Ranch Inn in California. The look and feel are similar. Amenities may not be at the same level yet. And、um, if you are not so picky, that these are the top top ends I'm talking about. But there are a massive supply of the next level of price range, which are the you know the Hiltons, the uh, uh, Chinese branded.、Um, Like the higher place, such places would maybe in the range of a hundred dollars, a hundred twenty dollars. That range, you can there's so much supply. You just go on Booking.com or Trip.com,、uh, you'll get dizzy. And they're very good value for one night, for two nights.、Um, they generally cater to a、um, working population that may be on a business trip, but they are perfectly clean and very efficient, very good value. So that's the next one. Equivalent to that, there are a lot of bed and breakfast places around China now. Also, at about similar price range, or I would say a little bit higher, one fifty to two hundred dollars, in remote locations.、Um, pick and choose. Read the reviews online. Some of them are fantastic in the sense that they may not have the best hardware, but you can really get close to the local hosts and people who live there and work there. So in general, I would say hotels in China are are very easy, abundant supply, good value for money. Once you're in the hotel in a city, how is it getting around like on your own in China? I know obviously Wild China offers guide services, but for people that are interested in exploring on their own without a guide, what should they expect? I think depends on what level of comfort you have with adventure. You bring that with you, right? You can either get really frustrated. Or have a fantastic time. It's really up to the traveler's mentality because the Chinese do things differently, right? Like you know, at a crosswalk, the car may not stop for you. Now they do a little more. But I remember my son a couple of years ago when we moved back, and he got so upset. He said, "I hate China. the The cars never stop for me. It's crazy." This was one of the things that drove him crazy. But once you sort of get beyond the surface level of frustrations, even without the language, you will find if you gesture, if you smile a little bit, and ask, people are always willing to meet you in English. The effort is obvious, and if you take it with a grain of salt, and you can giggle, and they they may take the word left. Uh, confuse that with right and send you down the wrong road. But if you take that as an experience, you will just laugh about it and not get too frustrated. 
Another tip I will sort of throw in here that I discovered very late in my time in China that was a lifesaver is Google Maps does does not work in China, but Apple Maps seems to be linked with like the Baidu maps. So you can search for stuff on Apple Maps and it comes up like so quick. Um, you can sort of like search the pinyin or the English name um, and it's, it's way easier to use. So, okay. Um, now that we've sort of zoomed into the different elements, I want to zoom back out and go to that more adventurous location that you talked about. So we've got the main cities of Beijing, Xi'an, Shanghai. And then you suggested that people go somewhere else for a week, get off the beaten path, do something um, more unique. So I think maybe a good way to sort of figure out what this might be for different people is to talk about interests. I know that um, as a company, we always ask people, you know, what are you interested in? What are you looking for in this trip? I sort of some of the answers that I've heard from people I'm going to give to you and ask what your suggestion for them would be. So the first one I have here is animals. If people are looking to see animals in China, where would you recommend that they go? I would say in general, there are two types of travelers I've dealt mostly with. One is the ones interested in panda or on the conservation stories. Well, if you just want, absolutely want to see a panda, want to hold one, you go straight to Sichuan, right? There are three uh, panda conservation uh, centers or nature centers there that you can choose from. I won't go into details there. The conservationists uh, to understand the approach to conservation and not feeling crowded out by tourists. There is a different way to access the panda area from the north. What most people don't get is that pandas live in the wild, and they live in that mountain range called Qinling Mountain Ranges. And it stretches from the south of Shanxi province all the way down to, you know, Wolong area in Sichuan. So that whole mountain range, there are pandas. And they live in elevation about 1,000 meters, uh, up to 3,000 meters, 3,500 meters, that range. Southern Shanxi province, you can actually access from Xi'an. And from Xi'an, you take a train or take a car for about an hour, you get to Changqing Nature Reserve. And there are panda sanctuaries there that are not necessarily for tourists, but they do have public hours. We do have a panda expert who, researcher who works in those research centers. That way you spend two days. I've gone there with rangers and hiked around for three days. Yes, you do get very close to the, the, the habitat of the pandas, and it's fantastic. They will show you the, the droppings of the pandas, the, the bamboo bites of them. The downside of that is the trails are tough and the reward is limited. What because pandas are very shy animal, you, you're very unlikely to find them in the wild. So if you look at that as a hiking in the panda habitat, that's a fantastic trip without getting you know, into the tourist area. And two, I would say another sort of um, highly prized conservation um, animal that China is very proud of is the Yunnan snub-nosed monkeys. And that is in an area that you go, that, that's in Yunnan. And there's another type of Sichuan snub-nosed monkeys near Jiujiago area. You can go to Baihe, what they call the White River, that area. You can see that in Sichuan. But Yunnan snub-nosed monkeys is more, you fly to Lijiang or Shangri-La and go from there. Further in the mountains, there's a nature reserve called Tacheng, a national park, in fact. Uh, Yunnan snub-nosed national park, snub-nosed monkey national park. Again, find a ranger and hike with them into the habitat, and uh, those are much easier to, to see in the wild. That's a fabulous experience. In the Gaoligong Mountains, there's another 
sort another type of primates. You can、uh, once again hike with rangers and get access to that. If you are into the tropical wildlife further south in Xishuang Bana area, there are wild elephants parks that you can go in, and、um, if you are lucky, you can chance upon the wild herds in the wilderness. So those are、uh, limited areas you can do that. There are people who go to China for snow leopards or Siberian tigers、uh, in northeast. Very, very rare and very hard to see. So th- those you would have to do a lot of research to get there. A lot of people go to China for birding. This is actually not a surprise for birders, but it's a surprise for the general population because China has you know, it's such a huge piece of land. And migratory birds would come from Siberia, fly through Beijing, and go to go down to Poyanghu, which is on the Yangtze River. And further west in the Himalayas, the black-necked cranes, which is a symbol, national bird of Bhutan, but they fly between Bhutan and they don't know the count the country borders, right? So they fly from Bhutan to Tibet and further coming to Yunnan area in Shangri-La. There are black-necked cranes. It's actually a big、uh, birding destination and one of the surprising area. Is Beidaihe, which is only three hours out of Beijing. That's where I would send people to. In that same vein,、uh, the next one I've gotten is hiking and nature. People that obviously they're going to go to the big cities, but they want to get sort of the other end of the spectrum in China as well. That real nature element, hiking.、Um, where would you recommend that they go? And I think also, what should they expect when they hike in China? I would say in China there are mainly two types of hikes. One is In scenic parks, by which I mean, say the Great Wall, there are zoned park areas, or the Yellow Mountains. Those are within the the limits of the scenic park. All of these places, there are traditional hiking trails. These are the trails used in the past for carrying supply up the mountain, or for Lamay's case, it's the pilgrimage trail for monks to go up. These trails are not really, but not huge wilderness experiences. These are doable in a day. You just need a day pack and、uh, follow the map, get up there by yourself. I mean, they they have pretty clear instructions at the gate. So there are these workers or porters carrying very heavy loads and race past you with a day pack. Very impressive. Also makes you wonder how tough these people are. In Lameshan, there are monks who have been walking for months, and they are hiking up that mountain as well. So it's in some ways very spiritual. I find I really enjoyed it, and there are very very few tourists on these paths, so that's enjoyable. That's one type of hiking. Another type that I truly enjoy are outside of these scenic parks. Let's say the Tiger Leaping Gorge hike. Or anywhere in Yading in the eastern Himalayas, these huge mountain ranges. The trouble with these hikes is that there isn't a ready, reliable source of information or a hub of services where you can engage. What I mean is, like, how do you find the hiking trail? How do you find a guide? Local person to guide you through the mountains, whether you need a permit or not, because sometimes you can run into someone who looks semi-official in the uniform and can kick you out. Like, how do you deal with these unpredictable 
complexities. These are the areas that have the most stunning footpaths. These are ancient footpaths. For example, in Yunnan, Sichuan, it's all the Tian Horse Caravan Trail connecting from village to village. And actually near Shanghai, there are these footpaths that connecting, again, villages to villages, but they are just not mapped. They were traditionally created for transportation purposes before vehicles were there, right? But nowadays, if you can find the resource and if you're willing to go through the trouble to find that, they are incredible hiking experiences. No, I love it. Um, yeah, I think that's great. I will add that to the first type, like you mentioned, the sort of designated parks that have hiking trails. For me, one of the most surprising things was that they're paved, right? They're all like paved mm -hmm. with steps where as like in America, you would not, for the most part, you, you wouldn't see that for anything that's sort of designated as hiking or a national park. It wouldn't have pavement and steps, but it makes sense in China because there's so many people um, I think it's, you know, to sort of make sure that the nature gets preserved and that people have a clear place to walk and that, um, you know, things are, are kept in a very ecotourism friendly way. So totally understand it, but it was very surprising for me. Um, and like you said, some of these mountains that you hike to the top of, it's like Stairmaster. I, I, my, knees, <laughs> my knees absolutely died more than any hike I've ever done because you're just going step, 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 step. And then you get to the top and you come all the way back down. And it's, so it's very different than I think what a lot of people imagine um, for hiking, which obviously China also has, um, like you were just saying, the more in the nature, on the dirt path kind of thing. Yeah, no, I love the point that you just pointed out. Yes, that's something that, you, because I grew up there and that's what I've seen. So I didn't make that distinction, but you're absolutely right. Um, one thing I do want to point out is the, the mentality difference, right? Whenever I hike into these wilderness areas and meet the rangers, they are always surprised. They're like, why are you here? I said, I'm hiking, walking in nature. And they go like, why would you want to do that? It's such hard work. So because hiking or walking in mountains in China has always been associated with hard work. Wilderness is, is a place you work. It's not really a place for you to play. This was a point that was driven home in our last conversation with Ed Norton. Chinese really traditionally don't look at nature as a place to play. It's, it's a place to harvest, either it's fruit or animal, whatever, to feed ourselves. But it, it, it's really a place to work. It's associated with hardship, not with enjoyment. But I think this attitude this is changing dramatically right now with COVID. People are discovering beauty and enjoyment of nature very quickly. Absolutely. And going on with that, um, something that you mentioned the other day um, and, and something that I have personally also experienced is if you go off the sort of path, not like, you know, go into the woods and trample nature, but if there's like a spot that people are all enjoying some scenic view and you walk, you know, I don't know, 10 minutes to the side or 10 minutes in a different direction, most times you have the whole place to yourself. I don't know why that is, but it seems I've, I've experienced this in multiple places. If you just go somewhere a little bit different um, from sort of the main tourist bus drop off or like you mentioned in Tiger Leaping Gorge, if you actually do one of the hikes, the little sort of dirt road hikes, you get this incredible experience with no one else there. So it's definitely still available. Um, even in the main tourist sites like uh, Zhang Jiajie or um, Huangshan, it's, it's totally doable. So I wanted to add that in too. One of the things, though, people are very surprised, uh, including myself, I find it slightly inconvenient, is that in these designated um, nature reserves like, like uh, Jiu Jaigo, hmm. absolutely beautiful, right? Jiu, Jiu Jaigo has 
all these ponds on a Y-shaped path. You know, if you if you run the whole path, I think it's the distance of a marathon. And they have the Cynic company that runs a electric bus that goes around in a shuttle bus in a loop. They every day, you know, every ten minutes comes one, and you can hop on, hop off. The downside of that it is chaining all the tourists on the designated path. It is a little bit difficult to deviate from that, say, into a three-hour hike off that bus route. That's very difficult. So what I did to really enjoy in Jiujiang areas, one day I did go in there to take some photos of the lakes, you know, blue-looking, beautiful ponds. But the next two days, I went to a valley next door to Jiujiang, and found my nature rangers and had them accompany me through the Tibetan villages up and stayed overnighted in a nomad hut. Up the mountain and hiked back down, and I had a terrible altitude sickness,、um, but it was much more beautiful to deviate from the standard electric bus route. Yeah, I didn't even know you could do that. That's a good top tip. I like that one. Awesome. Okay, so the next category I have here is, and, and I know you're going to say everywhere in China. So, but the category is for foodies. You know, where where would you recommend people go if they're real China foodies? <laughs> you already knew my answer. <laughs> you preempted me.、Uh, everywhere, right? <laughs> It's true. I just think a country with a long history、uh, that is. The first sign of that is the quality of its food and the quality of the simplest fast food. Say, if you go to Southeast Asia, you find a little hut and they give you this bowl of noodle soup. It's delicious. And you go to a village where they are roasting a chicken. It's absolutely delicious. And same thing in China. And China is one of these places where almost anywhere you find a unique local type of food. So for a foodie trip, I would start Beijing. You can sample all sorts of food because it's the capital. Xinjiang food would come to Beijing. Sichuan food would come to Beijing. And the best place to go in Beijing is each province has a representative office. Say Yunnan has a Yunnan government representative office. And they have a hotel and a restaurant. Every province has one in Beijing. The reason being, you know, that's that's where the governor would stay. If the governor of Yunnan, when he comes to Beijing to ask for more money to build roads or whatever, that's where he stays. So guess what? They have the best local food flown in from the whatever province it is, and that's where you'll find the most authentic, tasty regional food of China. Now, Beijing food itself, the duck. You can easily have death by duck. There's just too much duck. I would just have no more than one meal. And some of the easy places to have it, Dadong is a good place to have that. Very pricey. The ground floor, actually, the basement of the opposite house, has what I think like the easiest、uh, and tasty duck to deal with. It's actually now a Michelin restaurant. I don't know if you know, Kendra. Yeah, last year,、uh, right. That place、right. is so good. Is it what's it called? Jingyatang is that the Jingyatang. name? Jingyatang. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I, I used to live across the street from it, and my kids we would always go there. You can actually get by with just a bowl of noodles there, you know, for like fifty kuai, which is eight dollars. But they have ducks that you can order ahead of time. You can just order half a duck, and that's pretty good. Beijing is also a good place to try dumplings. But really, I would actually immediately get out of that and go to. 
let's say Shanxi, which is where Pingyao Old Town and、uh, some of these Buddhist grotto art of Datong Yungang Shiku and all of that. Those areas are just heaven for anyone who is not allergic to gluten, because it's the the noodle capital of the world. They just have a hundred different ways to make noodles, both Shanxi and Shanxi, that whole northern area noodles. Go to small local restaurants; they're amazing. Then, of course, Sichuan and Yunnan and Guizhou, that whole southwest provinces. Spicy, fresh ingredients.、Um, you know, quick stir fry, beautiful greens, very tasty, but strong flavors. So you you gotta have a preference for strong flavors and spicy sort of food to really appreciate Sichuan, Yunnan, Guizhou, and Hunan. Those four provinces, you can't go wrong with any of them. And if you're really a seafood sort of person, Guangzhou and Hong Kong, the dim sum and the steamed fish. All sorts of thousand ways to cook up the clams and crabs and all sorts of fish. That's that area. Thank you. I think you covered almost everywhere in China. <laughs> <laughs> what What would your suggestion be if someone asked you, you know, where should I go to experience local culture? I think my point of view on this has changed over time. I used to say, you know, you got to go here. People are really authentic, and you got to go there. People really are warm and hospitable. I've changed to say. Actually, I'm gonna put the task on you, the traveler, because local culture is everywhere. They don't disappear because of geography change. They don't disappear because of weather change.、Um, you know, in in spring and fall, there's more local culture, and in winter and summer, there's less. No, that's bogus. Or like you said, in the city, there's no culture. In the in the countryside, there is culture. That's ridiculous as well.、Um, what I think is, it takes a traveler to care. To pay attention, try to understand where you are at. It's really having an open mind to give it time. The one advice I would suggest is not to join a tour bus and rush from scenic spot A, B, C, and D. Give yourself the time and luxury to stop. When you see、uh, something interesting and talk to them, I'll give you an example. I live in Berkeley, and、uh, there are these ladies out walking up the hill every day for exercise. And one day there was this very old lady. She's she's like bent over and walking in the neighborhood. I was walking with my daughter. I said, "Isn't that admirable? I think she's fantastic to be walking like that. I I want to know how old she is." And my daughter just freaked out. My daughter's like, "Mom, please don't ask." That is so inconsiderate for me to go up and say, "Hey, can I ask how old you are?" You, you can't do that here. But in China, if you switch it into Chinese or, or even English and say, "Wow, you are walking at this age. I wonder how old you are. Can you tell me how old you are?" The old lady would be like beaming. She'd be very happy that you even care. So. There's very, very little taboo in these daily conversations. Like you know, someone selling noodles. You ask, "How much money do you make every day?" He'll be very happy to tell you. Venture out of your comfort zone, then you will find authenticity. Wild China Travel presents the China Travel Podcast, hosted by me, Kendra Tombolato, and Wild China founder Mei Zhang. In this series, we'll be traveling to a different place in China each week to share our local tips and expert travel advice. Catch our weekly podcast. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.